I'm Remington Edney Campbell, and this is the History of Musical Theatre podcast. This is a kind of special episode because it's the last one that is going to be filmed in this house. Season one and the first couple of episodes of season two were filmed in a cupboard under the stairs at my house. And then when one of my housemates temporarily moved out because COVID makes everything complicated, I moved into a more soundproof room in the house. But we're leaving this house soon. So the next episode you'll hear will be from the brand new studio in whatever form it will be taking at that time. Let's talk about West Side Story. West Side Story production, in its loosest sense, began in 1948. But wait, Remington, didn't it open in 1957? Well, yes. It's a fairly loose sense that it began production. 1948 was the year of Kiss Me Kate, the year after Oklahoma, and the year before Carousel. On the Town had premiered four years earlier. Jerome Robbins came to Leonard Bernstein with an idea, a musical adaptation of Romeo and Juliet transported to the modern day, focusing on the conflict between Jewish and Irish or Italian Catholic immigrants, set particularly in spring when Easter and Passover fall on the same day. But Remy, that's not what West Side Story's about. Where's the sharks? Dear audience, We have almost a decade to get there. Jerry brought this idea to Lenny, planning on having the same production team as on the town. Himself choreographing, Lenny writing the music, Oliver Smith on sets, Adolph Green and Betty Comden on lyrics, and one new addition, a serious playwright, Arthur Lawrence, to write the book. I mean, if you're going to adapt Shakespeare, you do want a serious playwright. But everyone was busy. Jerome was working with the New York City Ballet as well as choreographing at least a show a year, and he was quite in demand as a show doctor. Jerome Robbins' version of Peter Pan also premiered around this time. Leonard had been doing some work in Israel, setting up their Philharmonic Orchestra. Oliver had shows, but could almost certainly take on one or two or 73 more. Stevie hadn't even written his first show. He was still at college and all the glitters wouldn't open until the next year. Quick behind the scenes of the podcast moment. The work in progress draft of this script had such and such was doing show with show involved. So I could come back, find it easily and replace it with, I don't know, actual information. Yeah, for Oliver Smith, all that was really necessary was unbolding the word. Oliver Smith had shows. Besides all of that, it turns out someone had already written that show in reverse. Abby's Irish Rose. The team was working on East Side Story. It was then called Gangway, with an exclamation mark. Love how musical theatre titles, particularly in that era, use exclamation marks to differentiate between types of shows. Oklahoma used an exclamation mark to walk the line between operetta and musical comedy. <clears throat> Season one. I wonder if Oliver, exclamation mark, uses its punctuation to communicate to its audience that it's not going to be a two-hour sad fest. 
Lame is, for example. No exclamation mark. Three hours sad fest. But A-Side Story or Gangway or whatever you want to call this show was already old hat. And everyone was busy. As the years passed, the East Side tenement slums were being pulled down. Old hat. But if the show had never happened, I wouldn't be here talking to you about it. Leonard Bernstein and Arthur Lawrence were both in Los Angeles in 1955. Lenny was conducting at the Hollywood Bowl, and Arthur Lawrence was adapting his play The Time of the Cuckoo for a film. It would end up being the film Summertime with Catherine Hepburn. They were discussing what was going on in the news, a lot of which was gang violence between African Americans and Latinos in LA. They realised that this was the idea. Word was sent to Robbins with this new idea. Scratch the Irish, scratch the Jews, bring in the Puerto Ricans. On September 6th, Leonard wrote, Jerry loves our gang idea. Here we go. God bless us. The show at that point didn't exactly have a lyricist. Although Comden and Green were being considered, they had Hollywood contracts, and it wasn't clear whether or not they'd be able to get out of them. The play... The Island of Goats opened on Broadway in 1955. This fact would be utterly unimportant to the history of musical theatre, if not for its after-party. Sondheim was friends with the director, who he'd actually gone to work with quite extensively. When he arrived, he couldn't see his friend at all, so he went to go talk to the only other person he knew, Arthur Lawrence. They started to talk shop, understandably for two creatives at a theatre opening, and Lawrence mentioned the show he was working on. Jerry Robbins, Leonard Bernstein, Romeo and Juliet, and so on. Stevie asked who was writing the lyrics. As nakedly self-serving as that question seemed, that actually wasn't his intention. He wasn't looking for a job. At the time, and probably still today, Sondheim viewed himself as a composer first. Certainly then, he thought he was a very mediocre lyricist, although anyone who's bought the complete annotated Sondheim lyrics would disagree with that. Arthur responded in the following way. I never thought of you. I liked your lyrics. Very much. I didn't like your music very much. Thanks, but also rude. Lawrence told Bernstein, and they called Sondheim in to play some songs from his show Saturday Night. The team also consulted Oscar Hammerstein. Lenny and Arthur, if they should hire him, and Stevie, if he should take the job once it was offered. In both instances, he said yes. To Sondheim, he said, I think it will be very valuable for you to work with professionals of this calibre. They are first rate in their fields. When it was confirmed that Comden and Green were going to be unable to get out of their contract, the position of lyricist began to open up. I say began because... Leonard Bernstein still held out some hope that he would be able to write them himself. He'd written a few for Candide, and believed himself competent. In fact, he'd already started putting lyrics to a few of his songs. For example, the line, Boy, boy, crazy boy, get cool, boy, from cool, was his. I had to sing it. I had to. I'm not going to do a terrible line reading of a song. Sondheim was offered the job as co-lyricist. Despite his seemingly diminutive role, Sondheim proved himself to be an extremely valuable collaborator for Bernstein. 
His musical training made him a useful sounding board for the composer, and this collaboration probably also helped Stephen develop his musical skills, which he'd go on to use in all those shows we love. The composer of a musical didn't typically write the dance music, but Bernstein did. And it turns out there was a lot of it to write. I mean, to be fair, if he didn't write the dance music for West Side Story, you could hardly call him its composer. Oh, what did you write? Three lines? Cool. (laughs) Nope, cool's a dance. With this amount of work to do, he ended up relinquishing his co-lyricist credit. This was probably really important for Sondheim's career that it happened, because otherwise he would be viewed as a lyric writing assistant to Bernstein rather than as a competent lyricist in his own right. The next thing the show needed was a producer. Many great pieces of history-making musical theatre, and also Cats, struggle to finance their productions. We saw this last season with Oklahoma. Stephen Citron said of this challenge, Because of the uncompromising angriness of the subject, the hard-hitting, unpleasant story, it was difficult to find a producer. It makes sense. West Side Story has no exclamation mark. They were turned down by some significant people, Rogers and Hammerstein, who produced alongside their writing, and Hal Prince. Yes, at first. They did eventually find someone, Cheryl Crawford from the Theatre Guild. That's not the end of that story, though. With a team in place, they began to write. Arthur Lawrence finished a version of the book early on in the process, which was pretty unusual. And many of the lines that were in the script were taken and adapted into lyrics for songs. This process was actually so successful that Prince would go on to do it in nearly all his productions. Prince, he does get involved. Let me set the scene. April 22nd. Two months out from rehearsals, producer Cheryl Crawford calls the team in for a meeting. She was dissatisfied with the direction the show had taken. She wanted more social commentary, and if she wasn't going to get it, she wasn't going to produce the show. If you know West Side Story, you know that the only real attempt at social commentary is G. Officer Krupski. Great song. Well, Crawford didn't end up producing the show. Rehearsals drew closer. Eight weeks... Seven weeks. Six weeks. They needed a producer. Enter Hal Prince. He'd worked a little with Jerry, and he'd met Sondheim earlier. Actually at the opening of Rogers and Hammerstein's South Pacific. The Rogerses, Richard, Dorothy, and Mary, took Hal Prince, and the Hammersteins, Oscar, Dorothy, and Jimmy, took Sonny. Hal Prince remembered this introduction, but Stephen Sondheim actually didn't. During this time was when Jerome Robbins realised how enormous his workload was going to be. It turns out, if you have a show with a ton of dance music, there's a lot for a choreographer to do. He said, I can't direct and choreograph. I'll, I'll, I'll do the first one, we'll bring someone in for the second one. Hal Prince denied this request because his producing partner only came on on the condition that Jerry was choreographing. Jerome said he needed an assistant and eight weeks of rehearsals if he was going to make it happen. Four was the standard at the time. Prince agreed to these conditions. In my interview with Liza Gennaro, she talked about how Peter was asked to come on as an assistant, but said, nah, only as a co-choreographer. Which he did, although a little bit undercredited. We talked about that. The two of them 
each also had an assistant. The final piece of the puzzle was the cast. They didn't want stars. It would take away from the story they were trying to tell. But what kind of non-stars did they need? Well, dancers. In his memoir, Always a Dancer, Robert Brassel said, I explained that I did not want to study ballet. I thought I would be better at jazz. I mentioned that I wanted to dance in Jerome Robbins' West Side Story in New York City. Mr. Robbins won't give you the time of day without ballet training. For example, cast member Gene Gavin came from the world of ballet. He auditioned in 1957. Jerome Robbins said he looked familiar, and Gene hoped so because they'd spent three hours rehearsing Jerome Robbins' ballet at the concert together. He got a callback, yay, and had to sing, and chose a song that was one note. Not thematically, but actually musically. Now we have special articles to help dancers prepare for senior auditions, but the 50s didn't have the internet. The answer was initially no, but then he got a call the next day from the stage manager saying Jerry had changed his mind, and that he was going to swing the show. A swing is someone who is essentially the understudy for the ensemble. When Cheetah Rivera, Anita, was cast, she was working with Sammy Davis Jr. on the show Mr. Wonderful. She knew Larry Kurt and suggested he audition. I said they wanted dancers, and for the ensemble that is 100% completely totally true. They had some discussion though about the principal cast, whether they should choose operatically trained singers, Tonight is a beast of a song for a soprano, or more classically trained dancers. Every other song is a beast of a song for a dancer. They had a pairing of each picked out, and they went with their dancers, Larry Kurt and Carol Lawrence. By the time rehearsal started, Gene Gavin was no longer a swing. He was a shark, the Puerto Rican gang, or as he described them, the swarthy ones. Jerome Robbins was a bit taken with method acting, uh, Stanislavski's system, which in the rehearsal process practically looked like Jerry furnishing the notice board with contemporary stories of gang violence from around the city, and sometimes not too far from their rehearsal room, and the actors playing the sharks and the jets being pretty separate socially. They ate separately, and Lee Becker, who played anybody's, usually ate alone. If you know the story, Anybody's is a girl who wants to be a Jet, but they don't really include her. They also often rehearsed separately. Jerry and his assistant, Howard Jeffrey, would take the Jets, and Peter Gennaro, who Gene Gavin calls the lost man in all of this, along with his assistant, Wallace Sherbert, the lost man's lost man, would rehearse the Sharks. This did lead to some incredible moments in rehearsals, For example, the dance at the gym. The two gangs rehearsed separately, and this meant that when they first did it together as a group, neither group had seen the other's choreography, leading to it feeling exactly like the amazing dance battle that they were trying to portray. It wasn't all great, though. Robbins didn't always know what he wanted, and he would do numerous versions of each number, and then mix and match between the various versions. As Gene said of Jerry... He came prepared to work and expected his company to do the same. How Prince actually credited Robbins with teaching him how to be prepared for shows. He called the stage the battleground. This was hard work. Really hard. In the words of Gavin, 
It was eight weeks of sore muscles, bruised egos, and sweating bodies in the heat of a New York summer. They'd been given special dispensation from Actors' Equity for their extra few weeks of rehearsals. Dance rehearsals. Before the principals arrived. Once they did arrive, the work didn't let up. An even more visceral description of the rehearsal process comes from Carol Lawrence, who played Maria. She said, Lenny Bernstein would always come to us and pick us up from the bleeding mass of our emotions that Jerry left on the floor and rekindle the strength, and he was the reason why we would walk back out on that on stage. You would be completely destroyed by him. That's not the only thing she said about working with Jerry. <laughs> that Jerry Robbins was the motivating force in all this. He was the eternal perfectionist. The fact that one can never attain perfection did not deter him for a second. That was what he wanted, and if it ended up killing you in the interim, well, that was okay too. Robbins would often single out a single person in the cast for his particular criticism. Everyone wanted to help this person, but not as much as they wanted to avoid being that person. People didn't like Jerry. They liked his choreography, but they didn't really like him. An oft-repeated anecdote is during the rehearsals, Robbins was watching from the front of the stage. Over the course of the number, he moved further back, until he stepped backwards into the orchestra pit. No one stopped him. No one ran to help him. It got so bad that Gene Gavin almost quit. He told Robbins, who gave him a pep talk, which was actually surprisingly effective. A few days later, all the unnamed ensemble members got their names. Gavin's was anxious. He was never sure if the two were connected. I have to say, I adore the choreography, but I'm glad that the portions of it I've learnt a little of America and a little of Dance at the Gym, I learnt from other people. At least the company had Lenny Bernstein holding them together. As Carol Lawrence said, his role was as the gentle teacher, the logical, compassionate, caring and articulate teacher who inspired you so that you wanted to please him more than life itself. The show had its first tryout at National Theatre in Washington, D.C. At some point between rehearsals beginning and the first tryout, Arthur Lawrence and Jerome Robbins had something of a falling out. It was over two things, but essentially the same thing. Number one, Lawrence didn't like the way Jerry ran rehearsals. And number two, Lawrence thought it was inappropriate for Jerry to have the concept credit, as he described it. I went to Robbins, and I said, you know, Jerry, obviously they think conception means this whole thing of juvenile delinquency in the gangs, so I think you should renounce that credit. So he said, well, let me think about it. And the next day he said, you're right, but it means too much to me. The one reason, if you'll pardon my French, is that Jerome Robbins was kind of an asshole. Back to the out-of-town tryout. There were bits that weren't fully finished, you know, left to be improved on a little bit. And this is totally normal for an out-of-town tryout. Less normal is that one of these pieces was the rumble. You know, the big fight. I've done a little fight choreography, and I remembered hearing some basic rules. But I wanted to brush up on it just to see how atrocious this decision was. And I came across a list of 10 rules. 
10 basic rules of stage combat that keep everyone safe. From the website Performer Stuff. So thanks, you guys. Of the 10 rules, this production broke... Seven, maybe eight. Always listen to the fight choreographer. You can't if he hasn't choreographed the fight. Don't fool around. Um, how? Never improvise fight choreography. That is literally what they were asked to do. Always go at quarter speed until your fight choreographer allows you to go at three quarter speed. I shouldn't have to keep explaining these. Be aware of your surroundings. Hard to do if everyone is improvising. Heart beating fast? Take a break and breathe. I am sure Jerry would have been completely, totally, 100% fine with the cast just pausing to take a little breathing break. Always do a fight call. Fight calls are when you practice the choreography before the show. Again, hard to do if there isn't set choreography. I cannot say whether or not they followed rule 5, always make eye contact. Maybe they did, but... Still, guys, not safe. Like, these rules are about safety, not just because someone hates joy. Although quarter fights do feel like that, quarter speed fights. But in this production, not following them meant that during one rehearsal, Carol Lawrence hit Larry Kurt so hard on the chest that it had to be taped for weeks. Ouch. Also, not surprising. Guys, do your stage combat safely. The second tryout was at the Erlanger Theatre in Philadelphia. Apparently during this run, Robbins proposed to Lee Becker, who was playing Anybody's. We're going to talk about her a little bit more in the next episode and the episode after, because she ends up doing some really cool stuff. She approached Stephen Gavin for advice, and he said, Don't. She didn't. This tryout was attended by a number of famous people, including Sammy Davis Jr., the famous person, and... Tita Rivera's former castmate. The show opened on Broadway on September 26th, 1957. It got good but not great reviews. Not a huge hit on the order of My Fair Lady. To some time, this wasn't a huge surprise. It was a musical about juvenile delinquent ballet dancers. They didn't win the Tony Award for Best Musical that year. The Music Man did. Still, it was a success. Alan J. Lerner said of this show, it has choreography that has never been equaled in any musical from that day to the present. The legacy of West Side Story and what the cast end up doing is going to be over two episodes. Next episode, we're going to be looking at the time between the musical opening and the movie. And after that, we will be going up until either Jerome Robbins' Broadway or maybe the new film. If you have an opinion on that, actually let me know. Until then, something's coming and it's going to be great.